An old miner's proverb went something like this. If you're seeking fortune and bounty, go anywhere but Schuylkill County. While this was true for most, there were fortunes to be had in the northern hills of Pennsylvania. The world was powered by coal, and the ground was filled to the brim with it. But who deserved their fair share of this fortune was a constant battle. Some civil wars never end, and the combatants resort to desperate measures. In this instance, secret societies, ancient orders, capitalist titans, and a world-renowned private detective agency all came together to wage war in the anthracite coal region of Pennsylvania. This is the tale of the brave sons of Mali and the cowardly kings of coal. Welcome to DeLorean Nights, a podcast that travels back in time on a road trip across America. Join us as we explore unique destinations and navigate the amazing stories, people, and events that came to define them. We'll begin at two different parts of the East Coast, Reconstruction Era, with two separate events. Both events involve an assassination, meticulously planned, conspiracy-style assassinations. Both targets were soldiers of the Union Army, but of vastly different ranks. One was a foot soldier, no more than a private. The other, a commander. Not the commander of a platoon, or a unit, or even an army, but an entire nation's armed forces. The commander-in-chief. Yes, he was the President of the United States. Abraham Lincoln and assassination go hand in hand. But this is not the one you're thinking of. While an assassin's bullet eventually ended his presidency in 1865, in what can poetically be considered the last casualty of the Civil War, it was a conspiracy of assassination that also began Lincoln's presidency at the very beginning with his inauguration. Railroads were the lifeline of armies and information in 1860, and especially for the Union Army of the North. It was also a constant source of fear and vulnerability. Union intelligence operated under constant suspicion of sabotage to the railroads. If Southern sympathizers and Confederate agents destroyed strategic areas of the railroad, they could effectively cut off all of Washington, D.C. from the rest of the North, leaving it without the protection of the Federal troops. So the Union sent agents to every station up and down the coast, trying to infiltrate the Southern spy network and provide critical reconnaissance. One of these agents got wind of something big. The police chief of the city of Baltimore was a well-known Southern sympathizer. He was part of a network of 20 members planning to ambush Lincoln on the way to his inauguration. The plan was this. A couple of local thugs would start a fight at Calvert Street Station, drawing attention away from the arrival of Lincoln and creating enough chaos to get to him. Police presence would be negligible. The chief of police would see to that. The would-be assassins drew cards from a box to determine the trigger man. The lucky man pulling the red card would not reveal his identity to the others, as to assure themselves the plot would go through. 
Little did these men know that they had all drawn the red card. The union agent who caught wind of the plot notified the president's men. Contingencies were put in place. Instead of spending the night in Harrisburg before setting out to Baltimore, Lincoln took a special train to Philadelphia. Here he boarded another special train car that took him through Baltimore and on to the District of Columbia. During this trip, this union agent was able to suspend all telegraph communication to Baltimore. He also stationed several men along the route, ready to pounce at any sign of foul play. The countermeasures worked. None of the conspirators got a crack at Lincoln. Whispers of the Lincoln secret train ride and conspiracy for murder soon spread. This secret agent that unearthed the plot and saved the president was soon receiving accolades in the papers. Who was this cunning master detective? His name was Alan Pinkerton, and he would leverage his service to his country into a reputation as the finest detective in America. With his newfound popularity, he would build a national presence of spies and agents in every corner of the country. He branded his company with a logo of an unblinking eye, with the motto, We Never Sleep. This was the dawn of the private eye. His name would become synonymous with his profession. His exploits and achievements would be woven through well-circulated and embellished tales of Pinkerton agent adventures in popular dime store novels. We'll get back to Alan Pinkerton and the Pinkerton Agency later. First, we have another assassination to attend to. To reach the second event, we need to travel north along the railroad tracks, a couple years and a couple of hundred miles. Beyond Philadelphia and into the mountains of northern Pennsylvania into the year 1863, the coal region, Schuylkill County, the heart of anthracite. We'll start at a town appropriately named Coal Castle. It was home to the Burning Hills. Local lore recalled an old miner who once descended into these hills back in the 1830s. On a gray winter day, he discovered that, quote, water trickling down into the mine had frozen, turning the underground chambers into a palace of shimmering black ice, with frozen stalactites reaching down from the roof and crystals coating the anthracite walls. End quote. As was customary practice to prevent freezing, a fire was lit in the caves. But this was not a typical mine. This was the jugular vein of the coal region. The entire shaft of the mine soon ignited and created tunnels of flames and smoke. This inferno would burn for years. The underground stream that ran through the valley would steam up, vegetation around the area would recede, and part of the hills would smolder like a volcano. Locals recalled, quote, the fire hollowed out portions of the hill. Anyone traversing those areas ran the risk of plunging through the upper crust, perhaps three or four feet thick, and into pits of ash up to a hundred feet deep, end quote. The burning hills soon became a destination for the sick and the suffering. The sulfur-infused water was thought to have therapeutic effects. The burning hills reminded many of the local townsfolk of the holy wells of Ireland. It reminded them of home, and with it came familiar superstitions. According to Irish legend, the wells had to be protected from impropriety. Any acts of violence in proximity to these wells and their magic would fade away. Perhaps it was a bit ominous when the light of the burning hills eventually faded. Once the snow no longer melted, the water lost its magic. Quote, It was here, in the shadow of Mine Hill, 
where miracles were born of fire and brimstone and peasant belief clashed head-on with the capitalist spirit, that one of the century's most sensational campaigns of cold, calculated killing began." End quote. The spark of it all was the second assassination, the slaying of a Union Army veteran. On a cold winter night, a group of young men approached the home of an Army veteran, requesting some ale. While the soldier's home was previously known to be an underground distillery, there was no ale to be offered up. The young men drew weapons. The veteran soldier didn't stand a chance. The assassins were never brought to justice, and they would strike again and again throughout the coal region. These murders and violence would strike fear and chaos throughout the county. Who were these assassins? Well, this too is steeped in folklore, propaganda, and controversy. On the surface, this violence was just another body to count in the endless battle between capital and labor. Ground zero for this battle was the coal regions of Pennsylvania. As America grew of age, heading toward the Civil War, mine bosses, landlords, and capitalists were getting rich, while miners were sacrificing their health and often their lives, all for depressingly low wages. The assassins of this veteran could be considered beleaguered coal miners with a score to settle. But it was deeper than that. The violence that arose in the coal region had ancient Celtic roots. It was tinged with old customs and had whispers of secret societies. It was the last gasps of a dying way of life and a violent push against the oppressors. It's a common trope that people fear refugees because they bring their problems with them. The history of the Irish people is soaked in struggle and persistence. The Catholics and Protestants made Ireland the center of an eternal blood feud. Centuries prior, Gaelic Ireland would rise up to resist English rule. But you could trace this even further back. Before the English, it was the Vikings, sailing their ships to pillage food, gold, and women. But despite the invasions and their relentless suppression, the Gaelic tradition survived. The Irish community stayed close-knit and would not relent their customs and way of life to their invaders. Wars aren't really over until both sides agree. Enemies can occupy their land, suppress them for generations, but they could not infiltrate their way of life. For much of Ireland's history, the countryside community was poor and struggling to get by. A rugged class system created a multi-level rift between rich owners of the land all the way down to the peasants that tended it. As with most cultures, out of their daily life grew celebratory rituals and holiday traditions. Christmas and Saints Days were typical, but with the farming culture and Gaelic history came solstice and harvest celebrations as well. Quote, these were days not only for celebration and togetherness, but for testing and reaffirming the collective and interdependent nature of peasant life." End quote. In tough times, communities needed to count on each other, to raise the fallen and aid the impoverished. Without the collective, the community would struggle. A tradition known as mummery became the social test of the community fiber among its members. The premise had several common elements across the Irish countryside. Small groups would travel from house to house, performing a musical or theatric procession. In return, the homeowner would provide compensation in the form of food, money, or drink. 
The pageantry of the performances differed, but often had some common themes. The performers were typically men, dressed as women, or with faces blackened or whitened. The costumes were brightly colored or sometimes stark white smocks. Acceptance into the home and supplying the requested gift affirmed one's place in the community. Denial of entry or refusal of penance could be met with retribution. Now the details of these performances vary widely from region to region and what holiday was being celebrated. I'll read a description of a common one whose major themes were consistent with most performances. Quote, Performers dressed accordingly for their role, some in straw, some in blackface, some as women. Occasionally, they took on the appearance of a paramilitary group with garnished uniforms and outsized wooden swords, end quote. The mummers, as they were known, would knock on doors, asking permission to enter, and inside the home they would perform their well-rehearsed routine. This routine typically involved a duel between two characters. During the balletic fight, one of the characters would be struck with a death blow. A doctor would then kneel over the fallen man and revive him. Rise up, dead man, and fight again. Rise up, dead man, and fight again. The dead soldier would rise up to the cheers and adulation of the crowd. Fall and rebirth, a common theme. Now I imagine you may be thinking this sounds a little bit like our tradition of trick-or-treating, and that's correct. Our modern-day customs of Halloween stem from Irish traditions, as many were performed during the harvest season in preparation for winter. Like Halloween, these performances had some sinister undertones behind their joyful appearance. The mock violence could turn real if the rules of the community were not obeyed. As I mentioned before, these performances were rife with symbolism and folklore. The resurrection of the dead is commonplace in many cultures. Within Irish culture, there's a legend of a great hero, Chuchulain, caught up in a friendly duel that turned deadly. As the severity of the fighting escalated, Chuchulain eventually decapitates his opponent, only to watch him rise and re-engage in the fight. Many more examples are cited in ancient texts. Arthurian tales of knights returning to battle, and Irish ballads of ghosts arising to battle their killers. The costumes of these mummers had symbolic meanings as well. The women's clothes? Perhaps an ode to the collective Irish mother begging to feed her hungry children. There's also a tale of an ancient Irish war between clans and counties. One king sought to avenge the death of his father by sending a group of assassins. Disguised as women, they entered the hill of the high kings during a harvest festival and executed the rival monarch, very Game of Thrones style. So the costumes, the pageantry, all rooted in folklore and oral traditions passed on from generations. While it was latent with religious symbology, some folklorists believe many of the themes predate Christianity and represent ancient pagan rituals. The mummers would come to be known by many names, many of them based on the costumes they donned. Wren boys, white boys, straw boys, ribbon men, and the most notorious of all, the Molly Maguires. Acting as the arm of the community, the activities of these mummers would shift over time. Beyond simple performances, their actions grew more serious, secretive, and often sinister. They would appear at weddings, expecting to be wined and dined, and even have a dance with the bride. This was the last appeal of the bachelors 
to a woman leaving their community. Eventually, these mummers would become the tools used to carry out retribution to those who had broken the code of the community. Quote, the masks of the mummers were the benevolent face of an alternative social order. The darker side of that alternative order surfaced only when positive measures, like the festive processions, failed to ensure that favors were reciprocated among the peasantry, and that the landlords granted the peasantry the land it needed to subsist. End quote. Landlords that were not following the established code, fathers that would not offer their daughters into the local dating pool, these would be the prime candidates for retribution. The bloodletting and score-settling that occurred shifted these groups into secret societies, none more dangerous and none more infamous than the Molly Maguires. Said Molly to her darling sons, What tyrants shall we tumble? That filthy tribe we can't abide, they rob both meek and humble. These societies and the violence that followed were rampant in the early 19th century throughout rural Ireland. There were many scores to settle. The English, the Protestants, the landlords. The lower class was constantly squeezed, and the community would lash out through these secret societies. Intimidation, arson, beatings, and even murder was commonplace along the countryside. By the mid-1800s, life got worse for the Irish much worse. The crop that sustained their life stopped growing. Over a million would starve or die of disease. Many Irish had a choice. Remain and starve to death, or move and hope to make ends meet in a foreign land. America held a promise for a new life. Only when they got there, they found their new home hostile toward them. Many jobs were not offered to the Irish. They took the railroad north, beyond Philadelphia, and into the anthracite region. The rugged hills held rumors of readily available jobs in the booming coal industry. But what they found was also disheartening. Horrendous conditions in the mines. The danger was constant, and the pay was meager. They had fled their dying country for a promise of a better life, only to find the same systematic suppression they had known for generations. The community, in their new home, like in their old, would have no choice but to fight back. The ancient order would soon resurface. Rise, dead man, and fight again. The Molly Maguires, born in the countryside of Ireland, would rise in the coal mines of northern Pennsylvania. It is no coincidence that the Union soldier was assassinated by a group of young men who arrived at his house requesting some ale. It was also no coincidence that this killing took place right around Christmas time. The ancient order of the Molly Maguires were at play. Now, why was this Union soldier targeted as a victim of an Irish secret society? He was an Irish immigrant himself. He was a soldier that had performed his duty for his country to successfully maintain the Union. He was a working class man. Well, the politics of the time were complicated in the coal region. Everything was complicated in the coal region. And before we have a solid understanding of the political atmosphere of this region, we need to examine its geographic and geological features. Even the weather of the region is important. 85 miles north of Philadelphia, the landscape grows mountainous and wooded. It's plush full of grays and other muted colors. In the fourth Sherlock Holmes novel, titled The Valley of Fear, Arthur Conan Doyle describes the region as, quote, 
gloomy land of black crag and tangled forest. Through this gloom, there pulsed the red glow of furnaces on the side of the hills." End quote. On the mountaintops, the snow remained, a stark reminder of the biting cold of winter that was always right around the corner. Long referred to as the St. Anthony's Wilderness, it only grew in expanding population when the vast quantities of coal that lay underneath its ground were discovered. Railroad tracks soon provided the only feasible connection with the rest of America. It was determined that the coal fields covered an expansive 500 square miles. Natural geography divided the fields into distinct regions. The northern fields, up by Scranton, and the lower fields in the heart of Schuylkill County. The coal that lay underneath the field, valley, and in the hills was not just ordinary coal, but the best coal the earth produced. This was anthracite coal. It burned pure, with little flame and smoke. Anthracite was coveted by titans of industry throughout the country. In the northern fields, the coal lay near the surface and could be extracted without much difficulty. Therefore, the economic and social structure of the north evolved at a faster pace. Large corporations quickly muscled their way in, buying the land as well as the railroads the coal would be shipped in. But in the southern fields, terrain was steeper and much of the coal was embedded deep underground. However, extreme weather of the region, high winds, strong winter storms, and heavy spring rain forced erosion to deposit some of the coal just beneath the surface. Easy enough for small-time entrepreneurs to set up camp and make a profit extracting the low-hanging fruit. These smaller companies jostled for position, and competition was fierce. Although there was an opportunity for small business, they were faced with the constant threat of the large companies weaseling their way in. Through the 1870s, there were over 100 mining operators active in the southern fields. The small companies were forced to scratch and claw their way to survival. With this much competition came instability. Lawlessness thrives on instability, and there was no better breeding ground than the southern fields. The explosion of activity resulted in the development of Pottstown, the major urban center of the southern fields. It was as cosmopolitan as the anthracite region would get. It was home to over 5,000 residents and to the area's economic heart and leading newspapers. Cut off by a sharp mountain range, the neighboring towns of Shenandoah and Mahanoy City were referred to by locals as, quote-unquote, over the mountain. These towns were a bit more remote, a bit more dangerous, and a little bit wilder. It was here that refugees of Northern Ireland tended to settle, joining the Welsh and English desperate for work. Now, as we mentioned, the competition between small companies desperate for success in the southern fields was fierce. One sacrifice of many made on the altar of profitability was work safety. Getting the coal out of the ground as fast and as cheap as possible was not only good business, but fundamental to survival. Another sacrifice for profitability was supervisor roles. Around 1870, there were almost 16,000 workers, but under 300 bosses. Before we get into the measly pay and other ways the laborers were squeezed by their employers, Let's take a minute to list off the inherent dangers the miners faced on a daily basis. The sudden collapse of the tunnel walls was an ever-present danger. Coal was extracted under the ground at various angles and depths. 
shafts, slopes, and tunnels were carved into the face of mountains, under rivers, and deep into the earth. Often the last vision of a doomed miner was the horrific sight of thousands of rats fleeing below his feet. The last sound they might ever hear would be an ominous creaking of the pillars surrounding them. These could be considered warnings of an imminent collapse, but warnings indicate that you may have enough time to escape. The collapsing rocks didn't even have to fall on the miners directly to seal their doom, only to cut off their exit and suck all the oxygen out of the air. With a plethora of unknown subterranean rivers, the walls could rupture and flood the mine. Toxic gas could also flood the mine, igniting the air in flames or simply poisoning anyone trying to breathe. It was estimated that at one point, the occupation of a coal miner carried an 8% fatality rate. If you were fortunate enough to avoid any of these fates, you were rewarded with destroying your lungs at a slower pace, inhaling dusk and toxic air chronically to develop miner's asthma, or the black lung. Although I'm in a foreign land, from the cause I'll never retire. May heaven smile on every child that belongs to Molly Maguire. Despite these dangers, being a miner was a coveted position. They were at the top of the pay scale. Most of the workforce spent their days hammering extracted coal into smaller pieces and loading them onto the train cars for transport. It was here the unskilled labor the low end of the employee hierarchy that bore the brunt of the free market. Pay cuts always hit the unskilled laborers hardest, and in addition to the low wages, mine operators owned the local supply stores and would jack up the prices of essential items. All of the money one would earn would go right back to the employer. And despite even this, these jobs remained coveted. Irish immigrants would bend over backwards to get these jobs, but there was a common perception that employers favored the Welsh and the English immigrants, spurning the Irish every chance they could. Civil War politics was a touchy area for citizens of the coal region. They were barely scraping by as it was. What would happen if freed slaves amassed in the region to take their jobs, willing to work for lower wages? Political arguments were one thing, but war became real for the coal region when the government came looking for soldiers to fight for the North. A narrative developed that the Irish seemed to be drafted at an unnaturally higher rate than their countrymen of other nationalities. Why would the powers of governments focus on the Irish? What was the reason for this grand conspiracy? Drafting the Irish would not only send them directly to the front lines to die, but it would also severely limit their voting power at home. Strength in numbers was one of the few weapons they had. But numbers were nothing without organization. Collectively, they could demand higher wages, stop the railroad from running, slow extraction of coal to a trickle. They could even stop the draft. If they could just organize themselves into a proper union, they could finally wield their immense power. A strike was a very powerful tool that hit the bosses where it hurt, their wallets. This is what the bosses of coal feared most. So they acted swiftly to secure the status quo and utilized blunt force to prevent organization. They convinced the government to bring in the army. The army would bust up the strikes. There were always willing workers. The problem was preventing the troublemakers from ruining production. Soldiers could use force to protect replacement workers, 
and bust up any forced measure to stop the flow of coal. When the army was eventually called back, the coal bosses convinced the government to create a permanent task force to keep the peace. The Iron and Coal Police was born, and their tactics fit their name and reputation. Any potential union activity was met with heavy force. Suspected union leaders were roughed up when caught trying to organize. Now the common dance of escalation was taking place. Since bosses were playing rough, using the Iron and Coal Police as their arm of enforcement, it was up to the mining community to even the odds. Legitimate and honest workmen organizations like the AOH, Ancient Order of the Hibernians, and the WBA, the Working Men's Benevolent Association, soon grew in power. They helped, but shadow groups, offsets of these organizations, began to take shape. The tactics of these secret groups were sinister. Former Union soldiers, you can see now why they were hated, Iron and coal officers, mine bosses, and store owners were the typical targets. On a walk to or from work, or on a trip back from the local pub, these targets would be pounced upon with pickaxes, knives, and even rifle fire. The attackers would emerge from the usual crowd of townsfolk, and just as soon disappear amongst them. No one was willing to come forth as witness, even though dozens were present. Sometimes there were reports of fires lit up on the mountains shortly after one of these murders, a sign of fellow conspirators lighting the escape route for the assassins. Mine owners were soon found dead or beaten to a pulp on the side of the road in their horse carriages. At first glance, they appeared to be victims of the menacing bandits that prowled the roads. But was this a random act of violence or a targeted retribution? And what may be the scariest and most audacious act was when groups of masked assailants, concealed with blackface, whiteface, or hoods, would raid a home in the middle of the night, guns blazing and knives shining in the moonlight. No member of the targeted household was safe from this savage violence. The targets were often dragged into nearby fields and murdered. While these extreme acts of terror were somewhat rare, lesser acts were more commonplace. Fires and simple threats would often get the point across. Coffin notices were pinned to the doors of those that broke the code of the community, warning of violence should the perceived injustices continue. One example was a local editor of a paper critical of Molly Maguire violence. The editor came home one day to find a note nailed to his front door. Quote, We will give you 24 hours to go to the devil. We ain't done shooting yet. End quote. Word spread through the coal region that the Molly Maguires had infiltrated the upper ranks of the AOH. They would hold secret meetings in pubs and midnight firesides to decide who deserved retribution. But however intimidating and threatening the Molly Maguires were, they were unsuccessful in advancing the plight of the miner. The Iron and Coal Police buckled down and maintained an iron grip on the region. A period of peace was eventually reached in the late 1860s. The combination of the power of the Iron and Coal Police, the achievements of the legitimate minor organizations, and the embracement of the new culture of Irish Americans successfully brokered this peace. As immigrants settled into their new country, their customs gave way to their new homes. Old Irish ways were outdated and thrown to the curb. Quote, All over the West Branch, Young men were turning their back on the Molly Maguires and the peasant mindset and lifestyle that produced them. 
young, second-generation Irish Americans whose perspectives were no longer limited by the dark, lowering clouds of Irish history. Their language was English, not Irish. Their music was the regiment of a band, not a freewheeling fiddle. Their hero was not a mythical Irish woman, but a very real neighbor, John Welsh, a Civil War veteran who had taken a leading role in the Union. End quote. The final push for peace occurred following the greatest mining disaster in American history, the Mine of Avondale. While most disasters killed one or two miners at a time, this particular mine employed over 200 men. The shaft ran over 300 feet deep, with only one entry and exit point. Quote, Sparks from the wood used to ignite the furnace, possibly combined with some gas in the upcast, set fire to the timber in the shaft, which in turn set fire to the breaker above. The breaker tumbled down through the shaft, blocking the only possible exit from the mine and starting a fire that rapidly consumed all of the oxygen." End quote. Asphyxiated and burnt corpses were pulled out of the pits for days. The body count totaled 110 men. A ballad was written of the disaster, noting, quote, No pen can write the awful fright and horror that prevailed among those dying victims in the mines of Avondale. There was no longer a lust for needless violence when such tragedy was fresh in the minds of everyone. With a new agreement in place, known as the Mine Safety Act of 1870, an equilibrium was reached between industry and labor. With this truce, the Molly Maguires faded into obscurity. But of course this peace wouldn't last. An ambitious and brilliant lawyer would soon make a play to amass control of the southern fields. He would throw the equilibrium out of balance, and the Molly Maguires would rise with a vengeance. Rise up, dead man, and fight again. So let toasts go merrily round. Each Irish heart conspires. Those tyrant towns will be crushed down by matchless Molly Maguires. A refugee of the Irish potato famine, Frank Gowan and his family were strongly linked to the coal industry of Schuylkill County. Able to avoid the draft by paying for a substitute to take his place, Gowan began a private law practice and quickly rose through the ranks of prominent lawyers to eventually become the president of the Reading Railroad. Prior to Gowan's reign, the railroad was prohibited from owning and operating the mines in which they transported coal. This was an agreed-upon separation of powers that prevented one large corporation from monopolizing the coal business, thus preventing one entity from maintaining a death grip of power over the entire industry. But Gowan, ambitious, ruthless, and cunning, made a series of guileful moves to shift the Reading Railroad into the primary producer of coal, in addition to its means of transportation. As we mentioned, the southern fields throughout their history were owned by numerous independent coal operators. Gowan's moves began to squeeze them from both ends. They already had to constantly deal with the union of workers. Now the railroad was piling on. Left with no other options, they began to sell their land to the railroad. A few shell companies, a few friends in high places, and Gowan's Reading Railroad soon had control of the production as well as distribution. 
he leveraged every asset the company had to purchase the minefields. Gowan bet big on the potential of this monopoly. The profits needed to feed the vast debt the company acquired was contingent on the coal flowing smoothly out of the mine, into the freight trains, and south to Philadelphia. But one major obstacle, or opponent, remained in his path. Workmen's rights organizations. Primarily, the Workingmen's Benevolent Association and the Ancient Order of Hibernians. These were the legitimate organizations from which the dreaded Molly Maguire stemmed from. Breaking these organizations and subduing the threat of violence from Molly Maguire was a formidable task. Gowan couldn't rely on the Iron and Coal Police alone for such a monumental and important battle. He needed help, and he turned to the greatest detective in the country. We mentioned him at the beginning, Alan Pinkerton and his Pinkerton Agency. Since his successful thwarting of the presidential assassination, Mr. Pinkerton built a reputation as a master detective, and his Pinkerton agents were trusted to fight and win the battles that law enforcement and the power of government couldn't. Lawlessness had historically reigned in the Old West. Bandits and outlaws roamed free. Local law enforcement was haplessly outmatched in firepower and numbers. Wanted men avoided pursuit by simply crossing state lines whenever convenient. The West really was wild in the post-war era. That is, until Alan Pinkerton took the case. He tapped his vast network of spies to track the movement of the wanted men. His Pinkerton agents were ruthless and methodical in their pursuit of the outlaws. Justice was swift, and Pinkerton made sure the heroic exploits of his agents were pasted all over the pages of his widely distributed dime store tales. Gowan, like most wealthy capitalists, was well aware of the capability of the Pinkerton Agency and their master detective. He soon arranged a job offer. Pinkerton wrote in his own account what Gowan presented to him. Quote, The coal fields are infested by a desperate class of men, banded together for the worst purposes, called by some the Buckshots, by others the Molly Maguires, and they are making sad havoc with the country. It is a secret organization, has its meetings in out-of-the-way places, and its members are guilty of the majority of all murders and other deeds of outrage, which for many years have been committed in the neighborhood." End quote. While Pinkerton could provide the muscle to break strikes and discourage union activity, he and Gowan had more audacious plans. They wanted to infiltrate the ranks of these organizations and destroy them for good, not just keep them at bay. An enemy conquered can rise again, but one that crumbles from within is dead forever. He came among these people at a very quiet time and bragged himself to be a plotter in a most atrocious crime. Pinkerton played his ace in the hole. A young Irish detective, a man of unwavering nerve to go along with a brilliant mind, James McParlane, was sent to the anthracite region, undercover, to infiltrate the ranks of the Molly Maguires. Under the guise of a wandering tramp looking for work, McParlane began frequenting the taverns of known Molly activity. Soon he impressed a high-ranking Molly officer by, quote, dancing a jig, singing a Molly Maguire ballad, and winning a barroom brawl, end quote. 
As McParlin rose through the ranks of the union organizations and infiltrated the Molly Maguires, several other waves of activities were turning the tides toward violence. In protest to Gowan's vice grip on the industry, the worker organizations dug in their heels and began what would become known as the Long Strike, which lasted six tumultuous months in the summer of 1875. Gowan's resources and control gave him the upper hand in this war of attrition. Despite desperate attempts to maintain unity and stay firm on the strike, the strikers were wavering, as hunger and poverty were setting in among the workforce. With no options left, the union leaders organized bands of armed workers to march with intentions of shutting down the operating mines and freeing imprisoned co-workers from local jails. Riots erupted and blood was spilled on the streets. State militia and police officers lay dead next to several strikers. But perhaps the most noteworthy among the dead was the Union, as after the riots it was no more. For the next several months, the Molly Maguires were under siege from both their enemies as well as from within. Waves of arrest were made to suspected members of the Mollies. A pack of vigilantes raided the home of relatives of Jack Kehoe, a Molly leader. In the middle of the night, his father-in-law was dragged out of his home and executed. His sister, seven months pregnant, was given the same treatment. As a final blow to the Mollies, James McParlin, who was a rising suspicion that he may be the mole responsible for the dash of arrests, had disappeared. In reality, McParland had, quote, come in from the cold, ending one of the most dramatic undercover assignments in history, end quote. Molly Maguire members not dead or in handcuffs went on the run. Soon a high-ranking archbishop of Philadelphia condemned the Molly Maguires and all who associated with them. While the Maguires were effectively dead in terms of their organization and influence, the execution of the incarcerated members remained. Jack Gowan himself, as shrewd and methodical as they come, acted as lead prosecutor. The star witness was undercover detective James McParlin. His testimony made for riveting newspaper fodder. Local and national headlines alike relished in his accounts of the intricacies of the Molly Maguires. Quote, he denounced the Molly Maguires as lawless wretches who, in pursuit of their diabolical crimes, had thrown aside all restraint, all respect for the law, and the opinion of mankind, and given themselves up to the unrestrained indulgence of their own passions. End quote. A local newspaper reported the cry of the coal region as death to all Mollies, and never let it be silent until the devilish order is irretrievably dismembered and its members scattered. End quote. Back in Philly, the Inquirer wrote, quote, When the inner history of the Molly Maguires shall have been written, it will embody the harrowing details of a conspiracy such as the world has rarely known. This history has been making itself through years of lawlessness, bloodshed, plunder, and general anarchy. End quote. As bad as it seemed in the court of public opinion, the court of law wasn't any more of a haven. Catholics weren't allowed on the jury. The times and locations of the trials were intricately organized to hinder the defense and encourage the accused to turn against each other in hope of leniency. 
their coffins were sealed. On Bloody Thursday, or what is known as the Day of the Rope, ten members of the Molly Maguires were executed in what could only be described as a clear message of swift and powerful justice. Thousands lined up outside the prison walls. The Iron and Coal Police were present to maintain order. Coal workers from across the county ignored a deliberate order from the railroad company and left the mines for the day. Reporters from across the country were in attendance. At this time, public hangings were no longer considered appropriate, but when these hangings were complete, the doors of the prison were flown open so that all could enter the gallows and personally witness the aftermath. Their remains, and all that was left of the Molly Maguires in the coal region of Pennsylvania, was soon buried into the ground. But was the conflict over? Not long after the hangings, the Great Railroad Strike of 1877 arose. Quote, Amid gunfire and flames, the railroad strike spread from Baltimore to Scranton, Pittsburgh, St. Louis, and San Francisco in the bloodiest class conflict the nation had ever known. Gowan had seemingly achieved total victory. With the help of the Pinkerton Agency, he had once and for all vanquished the Molly Maguires. He had secured his monopoly and solidified his title as the King of Coal. But this was not a total victory. In fact, it was Pyrrhic. The battle had waged for too great a period, and the cost would be monumental. The strikes, violence, and subsequent battles had hit his bottom line enough that he was unable to cover the required debt payments on its land purchases. The Reading Company soon declared bankruptcy, and he was forced to vacate his office of presidency. Years later, alone in a dark hotel room, he put a revolver to his head and pulled the trigger. In his final moment, he became his enemy, the murderer of a mine official. But railroad tycoons, robber barons, and kings of capital did not die in that hotel room with Frank Gowan. Nor did the essence of the Molly Maguires die at the end of a rope in 1875. As recently as the year 2000, a vicious and feared Irish labor leader and teamster named John Morris was dubbed the last of the Molly Maguires by Times Magazine. He was raised in the coal fields of northern Pennsylvania. His obituary in the New York Times stated, quote, With a twice broken nose and an assortment of scars, Mr. Morris was a formidable presence on the picket line or at the negotiating table, end quote. Was he really the last of the Molly Maguires? I wouldn't bet on it. As author Mark Bulick said it best, quote, If history belongs to the winners, legends belong to the losers. Rise, dead man, and fight again. Our main sources for this episode are two books about the Molly Maguires. The first is Making Sense of the Molly Maguires by Kevin Kenny. The other is called Sons of Molly Maguire, The Irish Roots of America's First Labor War by Mark Bulick. A biography of James McParlane called Pinkerton's Greatest Detective, The Amazing Life and Times of James McParlane is by Bue Riffenberg. And a good book about the history of the Pinkerton Agency is called Inventing the Pinkertons 
Spies, Sleuths, Mercenaries, and Thugs. That's by S. Paul O'Hara. So this is the final episode of Season 1. We're going to take a short break to write and research future topics for Season 2. Thank you for all of your support. And if you could please rate or review us on iTunes, it would be very helpful. And please follow us on social media. We have a Twitter account, Instagram account, and Facebook account. Just search DeLorean Nights. Special thanks to the production team of Van Vorst Films, who produce and edit this podcast. Until next time, thank you for joining us tonight, and hopefully we'll see you in the future.